you so much, Joe. Well, it's my privilege, and really it is a great honor to stand in this pulpit and to address you this morning from God's Word. So I'm grateful to be here with you. I want to read you the first verse of a wonderful song called, Is He Worthy? It's by a godly singer-songwriter named Andrew Peterson. It goes like this, Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? And the answer to each question in this verse comes from an antiphonal choir responding, we do. Well, we don't live many years on this earth before we take off our rose-colored glasses and see the darkness of the world around us. So we, like the choir in this song, have a ready answer to the question, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Today, we're going to learn from Daniel chapter 1. Our message today is titled, Daniel for Dark Days. Daniel for Dark Days, from verses 3 through the end of the chapter, Daniel 1. I want to talk about the darkness of our world as we set to study Daniel 1. It seems like starting off on the wrong foot to be so dark, but let's talk about darkness. Let me briefly put a few key passages before you, mainly from the New Testament. Ephesians 2 plainly states that everywhere around us, people walk according to the trends of this world. They adapt the sinful pattern of their parents. They come up with new and creative ways to rebel against God, and they follow what it says in Ephesians 2 in the opening verses, the ruler of the power of the air, who is Satan, described as the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Non-believers today are no different than they ever were. Their lifestyles, no matter how explicitly immoral they may be, or perhaps in some cultures seemingly moral, they are the fruit of evil desires. They are the lust of the flesh and of the mind. Sinners are constantly inventing new ways to express their evil natures. Whether such conduct seems undignified or highly dignified, without God granting his righteousness, their conduct is worldly, which is to say evil and dark. Just having a little more Bible study here for you at the upswing, 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that Satan is the god of this age. He has blinded the minds of non-believers so that they can't see the glorious light of the gospel, even though Jesus Christ came in the flesh to reveal God who is glorious. Ephesians 2, going back to that, calls non-believers children of wrath. They live under God's wrath because they don't respond to the light of the gospel. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. But sinners don't have the spiritual eyes to interpret what they see around them as the glorious works of God. So going from Psalm 19.1 up to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1.18 says that God will reveal his wrath to non-believers. Now it's true that non-believers are victimized by Satan every day. And that's what we hear in Hebrews 2.14 and 15 that says that the devil has the power of death to ensnare people in sin, so that, as the word says, through fear of death, they are subject to slavery all their lives. Yes, they are blinded by Satan from seeing God's glory, but they will bear the wrath for their blindness. 
And that's why Romans 1.18 goes on from what we read to say why sinners who don't repent deserve God's wrath. It's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1 then goes further, explaining that their unrighteousness is proven by the fact that God has revealed enough of his character and his works to everyone since the beginning of the world. But they deny the obvious reality of a good God. In the words of verse 19 of Romans 1, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So, rejecting the light of God's glory isn't simply a matter of blindness from Satan, as if anyone would otherwise happily look around and worship the one true God. No, John 1, 9 through 11, says that even though the Lord Jesus Christ made the world and came into the world to bring the true light of God to all people, even his own people, the people of Israel, who should have known him, who should have embraced him as God, neither knew him nor received him. And why didn't Jesus' own people know him and love him? John 3 gives the answer in verses 19 and 20. Right from Jesus' own lips are these words, Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. It is precisely that hatred in the heart for God's holiness that fuels all evil conduct. But God exalts the humble who fear him. God establishes those who seek his kingdom and his righteousness so that they live in the light of God's holiness and they glorify God in their mortal bodies with their conduct in this dark world. If you stay in John 3 for a moment, look at verse 21. It gives a sharp contrast between those who love the darkness and those who hate the light and those who love the light deny the darkness and try to live in that light. John 3.21 says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his, his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. Now, as we turn to Daniel chapter 1, with that framework for this evil world, we see a clear example of how a love for evil can animate the blinded soul. It is this love of evil, this hatred of righteousness that fuels the wicked king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to do everything in his power to corrupt the holy people of God, corrupt their holy conduct, so that during the exile, they become Babylonians. But we also see in Daniel 1 how true believers lived out their faith in the time of exile. We're given great examples of how God rewards the faithfulness of his people with his own faithful provision. Well, we're studying Daniel 1 from verse 3 to the end of the chapter, and what I hope that we will receive today from this passage is a renewed vision for our faithfulness to God in the midst of an evil government. Okay? Just throw that out there. God has provided for us today Daniel. He's an example of moral integrity and enduring trust in God in dark days. We need Daniel for dark days, don't we? Well, our passage provides several impressions of what these dark days were in which God's people dwelt during their exile in Babylon. And there are several examples then also of godly conduct to remind us that in Christ we are more than conquerors by the grace of God. And if our trust is in Christ throughout 
our exile as sojourners in this world, then we can proclaim these words from Psalm 118, verse 6. Yahweh is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, notice the structure of our passage in Daniel chapter 1 from verse 3 that's going to remind us of how to trust God in our dark days. First, we see in verses 3 through 7 the evil strategy of the government. The evil strategy of the government. That's our first major point from verses 3 through 7. Now, the passage gives us a second and a third point. The second starts in verse 8 and goes through verse 14. And the second point is the righteous conduct of the believers. We have the evil strategy of the government, sure, but we have the righteous conduct of the believers. Now, from verse 15 to 21 to the end, we have the third point of this passage for us, the kind providence of God. The evil strategy of the government, the righteous conduct of the believers, and the kind providence of God. Read with me for our first point, the evil strategy of the government from verse 3. Then the king said for Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal seed and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good in appearance, showing insight in every branch of wisdom, being thoroughly knowledgeable and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to stand in the king's palace. And he said for them to teach them the literature and tongue of the Chaldeans. Well, right in verses 3 and 4, we learn that the Babylonian kingdom has set out to corrupt children. It has set out to corrupt children. Notice how the king has directly ordered his most trusted official, Ashpenaz, Ashpenaz, who is the chief of staff, he's the head of the cabinets, head of the officials, to do something evil, to take some of the sons of Israel. Now, this top man of Babylon is set out to capture Israel's top young men. These include the nobles, a a term mainly referring in pagan uh, circumstances and and societies to call them nobles, but these would be those who, young men, who would learn to govern Israel. And the goal was to corrupt not only the nation's leaders, but specifically the Davidic line, because these youths included, what does it say, some of the royal seed. That's the line of King David. So how do you most effectively corrupt a nation's culture, its society, and its governance? Corrupt the youth. Corrupt the youth. In crude terms, get them while they're young. Now that's insidious. Think of how clever that is, how wise in worldly terms to capture a people by force and then slowly convert those people to not only a new way of life in a foreign culture, but to change its own culture from within so that the people themselves would someday stop thinking of themselves as Jews and see themselves just as Babylonians. This is a devilish strategy. And that strategy is to take those very youth from upon whom the the future of the nation of Israel rests, these aristocrats, we could say, those influencers of the people, those of the lineage promised by God, that Davidic line, to continue throughout the nation's generations and convince them that they were Babylonians. Now, if the king could corrupt the influencers and he could corrupt the Davidic line, then Israel's future is over. 
And in Satan's mind, this would mean that Messiah would never be able to come out of Israel. And that makes Nebuchadnezzar's assimilation program particularly evil. It is satanic. Now, verse 4 shows how this assimilation and corruption of Israel's youth was to be carried out. To corrupt Israel, the Babylonians needed to paganize the youth. They needed to take the very best of the youth, those who would attract other youth, other young people. And through their beauty, through their wisdom, through their ability as influencers, they would turn the hearts of all the people, starting with their own compatriots at their age, toward the paganism of Babylon. So the term youth here, when you see that in the verse, can refer to babies, it can refer to toddlers, it can be young children. Here it seems probably more like teenagers or preteens. And the idea is that the Babylonians wanted the immature. They didn't want the adults because the king wanted to mold and shape the young minds that were still impressionable. History teaches that the Persians would often begin their intense education when children turned 14, and that gives rise to the idea that maybe uh, these youths in question are about the age of 14, and that might have been the case. But what is the case is that the government wanted to take away the education of the children from the parents. The state wanted to infuse into them all manner of pagan ideals and idolatry. If they could remove the parents from the education of their children, then there's no stopping the indoctrination. After all, we would just call that education, right? Now, verse 4 depicts this conversion strategy. Look at that. Select the young people who are beautiful to to look at, these that are good in appearance, it says. Take them from among the Davidic line and the families of prominence. Grab the ones that are so eye-catching that they would draw attention in a crowd. Make them the influencers. Make them the celebrities. And then select the best and the brightest out of all of them. And take those who are already the best students, those that, as it says in the text, show insight in every branch of wisdom that are book smart, they're analytical, they're the Eagle Scouts, and they're the future valedictorians. They're the ones that in the yearbook you would label as most likely to succeed. You take them. They would look great on a magazine cover, and they'd win Jeopardy. Like, this is pretty, pretty big time. Right? Nobody can do that. And verse 4, furthermore, says that the young people need to be able to discern knowledge. They need to be able to discern knowledge. They weren't simply to be bookish. They needed to be ambassador-level smart. They needed to be quick to put the puzzle pieces together and strategize for the benefit of the empire. You see in the verse that these youth, it says, had ability to stand in the king's palace. They were poised. They were polished. They were charismatic. They were classy. They were, in every sense, the leaders of tomorrow. These were the celebrities that would turn into spokespeople, the kind of people that you not only wanted to shake hands with, but you wanted your children to look like and to act like. They were such important examples of Babylonian excellence that every kid wanted to grow up to be just like them, and any parent would be so lucky. Of course, we look at the strategy and see in it this worldly wisdom scheme, which is more than just worldly wisdom, it's diabolical. See, the last line of verse 4 gives the big reveal. The king said to Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and tongue of the Chaldeans. Here's where we see that the plan is to round up Israel's 
best and brightest and immerse them in a brainwashing program. The literature of Babylon represents the vast learning of this cultured people. It includes all the great libraries of books on agriculture, architecture, astronomy, economics, history, mathematics, you name it. That's Babylonian literature. Now, when you think of the seven ancient wonders of the world, don't forget the hanging gardens of Babylon. They're considered among them. But libraries contain all kinds of knowledge, and the Babylonian literature that these youth needed to study included all of their legends as well, all of their mythology, all of their philosophies, and every aspect of pagan false worship. They had to include in their knowledge a pantheon of gods and all forms of witchcraft just to be the highest functioning youth in Babylon. And mastering the tongue of the Chaldeans, as it says, would have been no easy feat. The Babylonian language itself represented a lot of different dialects and had a lot of connections with cognate languages, those that were similar ancient languages. So you can imagine the depth of work poured into these young people, these young men, to raise them up to the heights of influence. Was there any part of these children's thoughts and actions that Nebuchadnezzar did not want to infect? I mean, every bit of their education, sure, it's superior. And probably many believing families would have appreciated how much they could learn in just the typical world structure that you could learn wonderful things about the ancient wonders of the world, but they were being brainwashed. They were being reprogrammed. Even the fact that verse 4 mentions the Chaldeans in that term recalls to mind for the reader that God removed Abraham from the Chaldeans, right? He was a false worshiper. Abraham, before he was justified by faith and became the father of of many nations with this seed line of Messiah. He was a pagan idolater. Abraham would lead his family line out of the darkness into the light of God. But here, Israel's best and brightest are subject to the worst and the darkest back in the land of the Chaldeans. Is there any hope for Israel in Babylon? Well, the wicked king wants these youth so fat and happy, so engorged on incredible learning and on the delicacies of the land that they'd have no reason at all to look around into the darkness. Verse 5 paints a picture of total distraction, of the enticements of the world that prey upon these children. Notice that their indoctrination program has its perks, has its perks. Read verse 5 with me. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to stand before the king. Here we learn that the king's education program would last three years. It's a full immersion, master's level program of sorts for Israel's finest children that can handle that. An intensive immersion program. And after graduating, the student would become the king's nobles. Ashpenaz's young apprentices would soon fill his cabinets and do the bidding of Nebuchadnezzar, instant placement, the top of the tops. Notice other incentives for being a part of this training program, not only regular meals, which when you're in exile, can you expect that? They get the delicacies. They get what is called the king's choice food. 
and the wine which he drank. And that suggests his generosity, his lavish delights poured out on these young men. This is no prison sentence to be this close to the king's table. Incredible. Can you imagine that? These young men should have thanked their lucky stars for all that they were receiving. That was the point. But it's insidious. It was a frontal attack against Israel. Notice that this is a daily ration, as it says in the verse. Day in, day out, these Israelite young men were forced to comply, forced to eat, forced to drink. And after some length of time, even the best and the brightest would gain a new kind of appetite for these foods because they're the delicacies. They're given a new palate, and it sparks new curiosities, full of new flavors, new opportunities. And any normal person, no matter how strong your convictions would be, you'd over time grow lethargic to the fight. You'd grow fat off of the food. You would grow dull from the wine. And pretty soon, the light of God's holy standards would seem farther and farther away. But the darkness of the pagan world would seem really not as dark as it really is because you have the candlelight of the table. You have just enough light to enjoy at this wicked table all the delights and the desires right at the reach of the hand. You see how distraction works. Day after day, meal after meal, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes Many of these young men would come to trade the far-off light of God, that flickering light of God's holiness in their lives, and they'd trade it for the candlelight of the king. They'd grow fat and dull, all while becoming wise in the world's eyes. And so went this intensive three-year indoctrination program, the best and the brightest sons of Israel becoming Babylonians right under their parents' noses. Well, with the table set, quite literally, and the scene beginning to unfold before our eyes, we get to verses 6 and 7. And here we meet the heroes of our story, our main characters. Read verses 6 and 7 with me. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials set names for them. And for Daniel, he set the name Belteshazzar, for Hananiah, Shadrach, for Mishael, Meshach, and for Azariah, Abednego. Notice that only four young men are mentioned here, but we know that many, many young men would have been a part of this re-education program because in verse 6, it says that they were from among them. So we can figure from this context that most of the young people at this point, had given in to the distractions. How long did it take to enjoy everything that they were learning and everything that they were eating and everything that they were drinking and effectively just abandon Yahweh and serve Nebuchadnezzar with all of their hearts? But the book singles out these four men from among the lot, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And their names reflect the perfections of God. These are Hebrew names. Daniel means God is judge. God is judge, and that emphasizes God's sovereign rulership overall, the holy standard bearer who will judge wickedness. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious, and that emphasizes God's grace to all who trust in him. That's 
a privileged position. Mishael means who is like God. It's a question in a name. Who is like God? And it asks this rhetorical question to emphasize God's uniqueness. There is no one like the one true God. And then finally, Azariah's name means Yahweh is my helper. Yahweh is my helper. And that emphasizes the personal relationship that the believer has with God because God is faithful to his covenant, to his people. These are beautiful names. And they might suggest that the names came from believing families that gave them to their sons. And if that's the case, then consider especially how sinister it is that when they get into this premier school program, that their names are changed to Babylonian names. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, which is referencing the pagan god Bel. And it means, Bel protect the king, a pagan deity to, present, uh, to uh, protect this pagan king. This is a shift in authority and in allegiance from God as judge, which Daniel means, to deities and to the king. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, and that's the pagan god Marduk. This command of Aku shifts from God's grace, Hananiah, to this legalistic, ritualistic worship of a destroyer god, the storm god of Babylon. Does that sound like God's grace? No. Mishael becomes Meshach, who is like Aku, who is like Aku, takes the question about the uniqueness of God and shifts from that rhetorical question to another to suppose the supremacy of a pagan god. And Azariah becomes Abednego, Aved Nego, servant of Nego. And this shifts, shifts from the worship of God, who's transcendent, God of all heaven, to now serve the God over plant life. Well, what you see from the beginning of the state-run education program is the desire to disconnect the student from his family of origin by changing his name. But even worse, it's the desire to disconnect him from his upbringing, from his family culture, from his religious training that he would have received perhaps in his earliest years from godly parents. And even worse than that, it's the implementing of a totally new identity starting with his name. He must be identified as a pagan worshiper in Babylon. His name reflects the character that this wicked nation is trying to build into him. The name assigned to him is to be adopted by him. It's to be ingrained so much that it's acted upon when he speaks. He speaks for this wicked king. He speaks for these gods. His daily life will involve sacrifice to the gods to whom he's sworn allegiance, even in his own identity. His identity, his name, has been commandeered by the state. What little light of Yahweh that is left in the distance should be totally shut out now in the minds and the hearts of these children. What incredible effort is expended by the government to erase all memory of the one true God and to corrupt biblical morality. So without a doubt, verses 3 through 7 paint a very bleak picture of the evil strategy of the government to eradicate the memory of Yahweh from the exiles of Israel. But verses 8 to 13 paint a hopeful picture for us, an image of light in the darkness that 
undulating brightness at the end of a dark tunnel that reminds us that God is not dead. He cannot be silenced. He will show his strength in a world full of powerful, wicked rulers. God will reign supreme. Verses 8 to 14 show us the righteous conduct of the believers. Verse 8 reads, But Daniel said in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine with which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel, the one whose original name means God is judge, he resisted the onslaught of the king's daily enticements and all of the pagan learning. He had to learn it, but he resisted it entering into his heart. What does it say? He set in his heart. He set in his heart what? Not to eat or drink anything that would cause him to break with his pattern of holy living before Yahweh. You see, Babylonian food and drink broke the dietary laws prescribed by the Levitical law. And even if it hadn't, too much strong drink could cause him to lose self-control. And that would have violated God's law as well. But whether the food and drink of the king constituted a true violation of the Mosaic law or was simply a conscience matter that could have led him to sin against his own conscience, Daniel set in his heart not to defile himself. Isn't it a little bit ironic that the king looked hard for a wise, discerning young man like Daniel And when he actually tries to use Daniel's discernment for his pagan purposes, Daniel is discerning enough not to let that happen. That's an about face. Thank the Lord for that. Now, he couldn't get out of his education, right? And that would have included all manner of subjects related to pagan worship. And such was the state-run, government-mandated education program. But because Daniel was discerning, Because he was wise, he understood what practices constituted sin for him, and deep in his heart, he chose to follow the Lord. He obeyed the Lord by setting in his heart not to defile himself. Now, where there was the risk of compromise and ultimately the contamination of his soul, Daniel was extremely careful and took great pains to obey his God. But following the Lord always comes at a cost. And part of that cost for Daniel was to have to ask permission not to defile himself. Do you see that in the verse? He asked the commanding officer. He couldn't simply choose what to eat or drink of his own accord. He couldn't choose to walk away from his education. That certainly, knowing Nebuchadnezzar, would have certainly led to his death. Nobody goes against Nebi, right? So what was the earliest cost to Daniel in his fight against moral compromise? He had to ask for permission not to defile himself. He had to ask for permission from his pagan captor not to sin. Imagine that. It's so easy for us to live as believers on either side of the spectrum when it comes to compromise against an evil government. We could either just give in and do some worldly things, even though we know we shouldn't, Or we could totally buck against the system, refuse to participate in society at all, and even try to... I don't know, refuse to pay our taxes because we'd be literally paying for all time types of state-run wickedness. But Daniel understood the fine line that he had to walk. He understood how to live as someone in the world and not as someone of the world. 
And where he identified sin, he set his fence post. He would not cross that. But of course, discerning how to live a godly life meant that Daniel would have to ultimately honor this evil king. He would have to get permission from his commander, not not even knowing what response he would get. Nothing's promised, but he must ask. And this is the big question for Daniel at this point. Would he be allowed not to sin? That's a big risk. Well, verses 9 to 14 show us not only how the commander responded, but how God responded. Verse 9 reads, Now God granted Daniel loving kindness and compassion before the commander of the officials. Verse 10 goes on to say that out of fear for his own life, this commander didn't want to change out the food and drink, lest he should, you know, the king set his face, it says, uh, looking more, uh, oh, that the king should see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age. But Daniel responds respectfully. He sets himself up and his compatriots ultimately for an impossible challenge. Uh, an impossible challenge, though, that shouldn't cost the commander his head, right? Look at what the challenge is, verse 12 and 13. Please test your servants for 10 days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then our appearance can be observed before you in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. You know, 10 days of a juice or a vegetable diet is... Maybe enough to shed some pounds, I know that, but it probably isn't enough for an already fit and healthy young man like one of these Babylonian trainees to look much different than they did before. And it's totally counterintuitive to think that 10 days on veggies and water would keep them looking as healthy as the other young men who were enjoying the feast of the king. But such was Daniel's challenge. After this diet, you be the judge. And if you don't see a positive benefit from your pagan perspective, just looking at the externals, then fine, put us back on the king's food. Verse 14 says, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. You know, the commander, he was willing to give them a shot. After all, if these boys actually did look sickly, he still had some time in this three-year length of program to fatten them up again. It's just 10 days. Now, notice the commander's decision to grant... Daniel's request is described in verse 9 with these two terms, loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness and compassion. This pagan had sympathy for Daniel. He had sympathy for Daniel's companions. And so he was willing to give Daniel's plan a try. And he promised that he would be faithful to do as he was asked by Daniel and his companions. Notice at the top of verse 9, that such loving kindness and compassion was what? Granted by God. It wasn't in the official's nature to go against the king in this way, but God changed his heart. He reoriented his mind to, mind to listen to God's servants. Imagine that. What you see here in this passage is divine, divine guidance and divine protection. Divine guidance and divine protection. Divine guidance for the wicked captor and divine protection for the godly servant. So who is ultimately the servant in this scenario? Daniel is Yahweh's servant, and the commander is now granted by God 
to become Daniel's servant, to do what God, who is faithful, has commanded of this man. Imagine that. God responded to Daniel's faithfulness by making the commander faithful to Daniel. But to put a finer point on the matter, look at the end of verse 13. And you'll see that Daniel calls himself and his godly companions your servants. Whose who's servants? The commander's servants. You see, Daniel hasn't forgotten that to honor God with his whole heart, he needs to live above reproach. Even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he must respect this man. He must honor the evil king. Philippians 2.15 says that we are called to be blameless and innocent so that we will shine as lights in the world. Where will God's light truly be shown in this dark world? Well, in the believer himself, in the believer's words, in the believer's actions, and God will be glorified in that way. Now, this is an impossible challenge for Daniel and his friends. What's the challenge? To be as healthy as all the others after 10 days on a very sparse diet. Uh, You know, this is a request made in faith from a heart set not to sin against God. But it would be so easy just to give in the way the world does. But we notice this truth that righteous conduct in a world behaving badly is itself a blinding vision of God's glorious light. Think about that. Righteous conduct in a world behaving badly is itself a blinding vision of God's glorious light. Daniel models the light of God even in asking for permission not to sin against impossible odds. And that brings us to what we see in the rest of the passage, verses 14 to 21. Here we see the kind providence of God. Verses 14 to 21 give us this third point, the kind providence of God in dark days. Notice how God's kind providence pours out in verses 14 to 16. Let me read. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that their appearance was better and that they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Isn't that something? Not only was this lean diet producing health in these young men who were already healthy, but in just 10 days, they were manifestly healthier than all the other boys. Now, you might be tempted to start Googling on your phones how to do this Daniel diet, right? (laughs) We all want to know the benefits of veggies, unprocessed foods, and eliminating all of those sugary sodas in replacement with water. And I'm sure you'd come up with a great meal plan, and that would probably be healthier than what many of us currently eat in the course of a week. Uh, I'm among them. But don't think that the king himself was going to allow this premier school cafeteria to just serve processed food all day. They're not getting the bad stuff. That's the stuff we salivate about. You know, I, I don't think flaming hot Cheetos were among the king's choice foods. It might be among my children's choice food. But don't assume that Daniel and his friends were given superior health simply because they chose superior foods. 
No, this was a direct work of God. This, against impossible odds, was a kind provision from from heaven to ensure that these young men who had set in their hearts to obey God and fight sin despite their daily temptations would receive the nourishment that they needed in order to survive their wicked world day by day by day by day. And simply put, what do we learn even from this kind providence of God in the restoration or the the improvement of their health? Satan is no match for God. God helps believers overcome their daily temptations with daily provision. 1 Corinthians 10.13 speaks about God's daily provision for his children when they face daily temptations, similar to what Daniel faced. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. We need to understand that in the face of horrific daily temptations, we are promised helpful daily provisions from our faithful God. We can find the escape from darkness back into his light each and every day. And for Daniel and his friends, God's kind provision looked in a few different ways like the nourishment that they needed. Here's a first way that God's kind provision looked in receiving the nourishment is that they were fuller, healthier, fatter than the other boys in the cafeteria. Now, we need to be careful when we read an account like this, not to make this statement in narrative into a promise for us. Can't assume that a change in diet is going to guarantee greater health to you than to your neighbor who's not doing that. I'm not advocating that you change your lunch plans today out of some presumption that, you know, God's going to do for you exactly what he did for Daniel and his friends, but maybe one less double-double this week wouldn't be so bad for your body. Just saying. All right. Now, for Daniel and his friends, God's kind provision wasn't just the improvement to health to set them against the others. It, secondly, looked like receiving favor to keep on the diet. Because after all, he doesn't want to defile himself. That's the point. And verse 16 says that the overseer kept the diet going because it was apparent that it was working. But even this was a kind providence of God because we saw in verse 14 that the commander had them tested each day for 10 days. Now that means that the diet started immediately producing benefit to them and there was no off day. There was no lull in the health that was setting itself up against the health of the other pagan boys. There was no moment of testing on any of those 10 days that could have suggested a harmful effect. But if you know something about juice diets, for example, then you know that the process of expelling toxins and getting your system adjusted to function in a better way as a result of the diet can take several days. Toward the end of one full week, the body can be reacting, let's just say, not so great, right? But being tested for 10 days, they passed the test every day. And by the end of those 10 days, they were in superior condition. And all of this, simply put, is a miracle. That is a kind providence from God that allowed them to keep going with that diet. 
Now, if the first kind of provision was superior health overall, and the second is superior health every day of the diet, then the third kind provision of God surpassed all the others. You read this in verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and insight in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. You see, the greatest provision of God, the kindest expression of grace to Daniel and to the men, was an increase in knowledge and discernment, leading to greater wisdom than they had before. Imagine that. These young Jewish boys that God has put in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian school were already discerning enough to know how to distinguish good and evil at their school desks and at the dining room table. They were really these no-nonsense, no-compromise kids. They were given so much by God, and they responded in obedience. That's why they're the heroes of this story. And as a result, they were given even more gifts. 1 Samuel 2.30 says it this way, Yahweh declares, For those who honor me, I will honor. And this he did in the lives of these men. They sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But what does the Lord Jesus Christ promise to such believers as these young men? In Matthew 5.33, he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added to you. And so it was for these young believers in God's kind providence. In verse 17, God gave them knowledge upon knowledge so that in the midst of daily temptations and the rigors of their indoctrination program, they operated with an incredible set of facts and God gave them insight, insight upon insight into every branch of literature. They knew the extent of human knowledge They comprehended the limits of the pagan mind on every subject. But more importantly, it says that God gave them what? Wisdom. You see, as they implanted vast amounts of Babylonian knowledge into their minds, with wisdom they could guard their hearts so that the wicked schemes of the enemy would not penetrate their hearts. Instead, they used the wisdom of God just as Moses prayed in Psalm 90, to present to God a heart of wisdom. As God gave them wisdom, so they used it. To do what? To guard their hearts from evil. To operate with the light of God in the midst of the darkness around them in their day. To present back to God in praise a heart full of wisdom. So wisdom was the key to truly ascertaining the meaning of everything that they were learning, to put everything into the right framework. Wisdom gave them spiritual insight so they wouldn't be ensnared by the government's ideologies, so they wouldn't be conformed to the image of the other cultural influencers at the next table and in their classes. And so that when they finally stepped foot in the throne room of King Nebuchadnezzar, They would enter not as his slaves, but as ambassadors of the Most High God. This was God's gift of wisdom to these believers in their dark days in Babylon. Now, notice that the book is not called The Visions of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The book centers 
on Daniel, and there's a reason for that, and it's given to us here in verse 17 at the end. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. You see, while all four boys were faithful and they bestowed incredible, they were bestowed incredible favor by God and also by their captors, even to the point of a kindness that is considered loving kindness. And they were ready to stand before the Babylonian king, Daniel, is exalted above the rest because God has granted him access to not just stand before this earthly king, but to stand in the supernatural realm through all kinds of visions and dreams. Imagine that. Adding to worldly knowledge, this increased spiritual knowledge, this wisdom, and then adding to that this, these divine revelations that go so far beyond what any mortal has ever experienced. Imagine that. Daniel not only received visions and dreams by God, but he understood them. Notice that term in the verse. Now, the rest of the book bears out how God revealed many visions and dreams and how Daniel was able to correctly interpret them because he understood them. So it's a gift from God. Again, a kind providence of the Lord. And so Daniel stands alone throughout the book as this revealer of God's word for visions and dreams that no pagan diviner could ever possibly interpret. And so in the kind providence of God, the time came for Daniel and the other men to enter into the courts and bear testimony of the Lord's faithful hand in their lives. So what's Nebuchadnezzar going to find when they finally get into his throne room? Will this indoctrination program that exalts him at all costs, this egomaniac, will it have been successful in these sons of Israel? Will he prove to be ruler over all or someone else? Well, verse 18 shows us the scene. These four graduates are brought before the king with all the pomp and circumstance toward himself. They've graduated, but the glory is supposed to go to Nebuchadnezzar. So in verse 19, the king talked with them. Now, you can imagine the scene. I mean, you can imagine the mix of terror and sheer gawking. I mean, the fact that you, you're starstruck by this guy is an awful guy, but you're seeing him in the flesh. And that would have overcome any typical graduate that goes there for some kind of a ceremony. But imagine the terror of the grilling, because what comes next seems to be the hardest oral exam that any student has ever faced in history. You know, one wrong answer with Nebuchadnezzar. That's it. But these four young men, and they name them here by their Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Names that give glory to God and God alone. They not only passed their defense, they got the A++++. They are superior. The text says, out of them all, not one was found like them, so that they stood in service before the king. That's automatic placement in the highest position possible. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may think he's getting the glory from it, but the one true God is getting the glory for it. These were supposed to be the king's wicked men, the men that would do his bidding as a wicked king, but they were really faithful men because they were sent there by the good king, you see. 
They were the ambassadors of the Most High God. They were the light of God in that dark throne room. And as they shined, so God would radiate out his light throughout the Babylonian Empire. So that in no corner of that earthly kingdom was there a question about who was really the king on the throne. Just look to Daniel and his friends. There's only one king. He is the king that these uncompromising young men served with their hearts of wisdom. Imagine that. And so it's fitting when you get to verses 20 and 21 that you get a kind of epilogue to this whole thing. Read with me. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding which the king sought from them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his kingdom. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. As lights in their dark world, these four young men became the chief counselors to this wicked king, but they advised him well. They advised him with godly insight. And it says they advised him, quote, on every matter of wisdom in understanding. You see, our heroes were, the text says, 10 times better than those learned men at the heights of their worldly wisdom. They were so totally and perf- perfectly exalted in their knowledge, which that number 10 also represents. So incredibly exalted in knowledge and righteous application of the truth that no one in the kingdom could even come close no matter how many spells, how many incantations, how many demons they could get instruction from in their esoteric ways. These were God's men serving as his ambassadors for his glory in that wicked kingdom. And so continuing until the first year of Cyrus, which puts it at 538 BC, that means that Daniel would have faithfully served nearly 70 years. A full life of faithfulness. A full life. So many decades living as God's light in a nation overrun by sinful leaders. A nation where evil is called good and good is called evil. Imagine that. Holding firm until the end like Daniel. Imagine that. Satan working to destroy God's people today using powerful nations today to press hard against believers so that they will break. Does that sound like Daniel's Babylon? That was Daniel's Babylon. Imagine that, the world, the world enticing us with material incentives, angling for our conformity to lesser values, half-truths, fleshly goals, all through powerful influencers, through celebrities, spokespeople, that work for the cause of evil. That was Daniel's Babylon. Imagine that, the government designing evil programs, attempting to erase the history of the righteous, limiting the authority and the influence of parents, forcing new ideologies on children so that they would even change their identities in school. That was Daniel's Babylon. Now imagine that, God, preserving even the youngest so that they would resist the pressure of their schools, so they would resist the pressure of their influencers who scheme against the truth. That happened in Daniel's Babylon. 
Imagine that. God raising up godly parents who would instill an identity of Christ-likeness in their children. So that when those temptations are served up like a dish, they would set in their hearts to obey Christ. That happened in Daniel's Babylon. And imagine that. God rewarding obedience even when we must subject ourselves to evil captors. And imagine that. God in the onslaught of our temptations giving us the strength to stand up under our attacks, to await the day in which Messiah will return and will flood this world again with his light. See, that was promised in Daniel's Babylon. And that was experienced, that level of faithful waiting in Daniel's Babylon. So I ask you, do you feel like you're living in Daniel's Babylon today? Well, you're getting closer to the age in which the world will become the new Babylon. That's promised also in, Babylon, in, in Daniel. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious truths in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Would you help us to be Daniels in our dark days as new Babylon approaches? Set in our hearts today and every day to come to your light, to practice your truth, and to manifest to the onlooking world that our deeds have been done by God. We beg you to accomplish your perfect will in us, your servants, through the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.